Alright y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. On episode 125, John J. Thompson began telling the story of the magazine he helped found, True Tunes. Because of time constraints, we had to take a quick pause, but we're back to finish the epic telling. If you don't know what True Tunes is, I'd for sure go back to that episode before starting this one. That said, let's get back into it. Christianity is a very splintered thing, and it has been from the from the get go. I mean, there's four <laughs> different gospel takes on the same story. Did you ever take a band or artist to task about some kind of theological statement that you felt was clearly way out there? On a personal level, I've definitely had lots of discussions over coffee or other beverages with. But you never used the magazine to. We would use it not not on an individual like let's attack this one person's thing, but in the editorial thing. Sometimes I would confront what I thought I was encountering were more widespread problems, and we tried to set a tone that was more about let's reinforce what is right and good and true and beautiful, and less about let's try and correct what's wrong. The other thing is, like I said, I grew up in the in this weird, I now realize very, very fortunate blend of my mom's kind of charismatic, backwoods, homespun Jesus movement kind of faith with the structure of the Episcopal Anglican tradition. And I grew up in an Anglican Episcopal church in the Chicago suburbs that was full of people that actually believed in God and were really passionate about studying the Bible and a youth group that was like really engaged with not teaching us how to avoid secular stuff, but teaching us how to process things. Again, I didn't realize that that's not how every Christian kid is trained. Like I later found people who were basically raised in some sort of a bubble. They were trained to avoid things. I was trained by my youth pastors and my priests and my parents and my aunts and uncles and my grandparents, I was trained to be critical and thoughtful. Engage. And engage, yeah. yeah. And again, you only know the reality that you're presented with. And so I kind of assumed that most Christians were raised up that way. I didn't really understand fundamentalism until I opened True Tunes. And most of the audience for the store were fundamentalists of some stripe. And there was something about the fundamentalism when it came to the simplicity of the gospel message that worked well with rock and roll. Like you could go watch a band play and he could go, hey man, Jesus is king and Lord and I let him in my heart and that's all there is to it. And it's like, yeah, Yeah, yeah. that's that's rock and roll, man. That's really simple. That's Mm -hmm. ACDC level thinking, but it was not satisfying. And then there was Jesus People and Res Band and Cornerstone, which was such a different thing because yes in a way it was fundamentalist evangelical but in another way they weren't ignoring the social issue stuff and their rules that you might call it you know i remember back in the 80s they had a rule that the people that lived at jesus people couldn't have tattoos and i thought that's kind of funny some of you already have to do well they came from before you know their thinking was to look at the culture they were called to engage and to just avoid becoming what 
one of our favorite terms was a stumbling block. You know? mm-hmm. And so I learned about that in practice as a young adult, not as a kid. Mm. And so I didn't have that escapist kind of model when I started the True Tunes thing. That was never part of it. And that's why when Lenny Kravitz's record came out, I'm like, this is really interesting. I sold it. And then I remember getting a little bit more controversy over selling Keith Green because, (laughs) well, here's the thing, because because back in the day before I was around, Keith had a very strident anti-Catholic side of what he did. He even claimed at one point that if transubstantiation was true, uh, then Catholics were cannibals. And this was something that again, I later realized was a strain of evangelical fundamentalism that I had not encountered. But some of my Catholic friends, especially from Wheaton Religious, they were like, Keith Green is hurtful. Like, not just controversial, that's hurtful. And I I was so surprised because I heard Keith Green from a totally different perspective. But we would have to be really sensitive. I was like, well, I really kind of think we should sell Keith Green's stuff, even if it's controversial. I found out that later on, after he made those comments, before he died, Keith recanted a lot, apologized, said, Mm -hmm. man, I was young. I was a loudmouth. I was a hothead. I shouldn't have said that stuff. But unfortunately, apologies never spread as fast as the original offense. So... Based on his apology, I was able to get my boss to let me sell Keith Green stuff. And then this punk band from Texas called Lust Control, they had a tape called This Is a Condemnation. And of course, in the Catholic world, birth control was not, yeah. And so I was like, this is really funny. Managing everybody's yeah. trigger points was, was something that... It's a release, it's a release, it's a release. A release from what? Your sexual appetite? Forget it, get real. It's artificial sex. I did have a theological thing that after listening to Christian music from the time I was 12 or 13 until I was 18 or 19, so it seemed like forever, but at the time I now realize it was six or seven years. One of the common themes of from Larry Norman through was this idea of the rapture. Yeah. And it was presented in a way that was not, well, here's an interesting theory, a way to interpret these scriptures. Here's one option of how to interpret these scriptures. It was presented as just the only way to interpret the scriptures. Now, the interesting thing about the Anglican tradition is that there's a lot of issues that they don't take a hard line on. They might say, well, that's that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but then there's this. They didn't ever teach rapture fixation for sure. Mm-hmm. But they did. My, my church did definitely talk about Jesus coming back mm-hmm. and setting all things to rights. So... I kind of absorbed this rapture theology, which I later learned was kind of dispensationalist theology, through the evangelical side of the music that I was listening to and selling. And then I started to realize about the time I was 18, 17, that it was feeding in me this desire to just go to heaven and just be done with this place. Yeah. Just get away. Get away. And I can't remember who it was at my church, at this Episcopal church, whether it was one of the priests or my youth pastor, I can't remember. But somebody really challenged me on that and said, maybe if this idea is causing you to want to disengage from the world, 
you should really ask yourself if that's the right idea, if you're understanding that right. Because everything I see about the gospel is we're supposed to engage the world and be agents of God's kingdom now and not just wait for a rapture and hope that we're on the right side of any argument so that when the rapture happens, we get sucked up to heaven. And that led to me then becoming more mindful of this rapture theology. Then I started to realize how pervasive it was even subtly in some of the music, Mm -hmm. which led to some conversations with some of the artists and some pastors and like one of the heads of the theology department at Moody Bible Institute was a true tunes regular. And he Mm -hmm. gave me some books. He's like, here, you got to read this four views on the millennium. You got to read this. But it was always a part of an ongoing dialogue. It was never like in print. I'm going to attack this person's theology. It seems that Christians are probably all, we all get distracted by things that can become idols. Maybe every generation has its own thing that gets caught up. And I think you mentioned the rapture thing, because that seemed to be a big thing for a while. I think because the Frank Peretti books, people got yeah. really obsessed with spiritual, spiritual warfare. warfare and maybe distracted by that. And then I think like in Southern Gospel, they're obsessed with going to heaven because like every other song is about how great it's going to be to see Grandma again. <laughs> right. And I'm not dismissing those things. Well, in Black Gospel music, the, the struggle of living in poverty, living as an, a permanent underclass culture, yeah. then there's no, there's no surprise that the theology of deliverance is going to become the dominant theme of the, the Christian music. I right. totally get it. Rich white people don't need to sing songs about someday escaping the bonds of <laughs> the prison they're in. They're the ones That's holding true. the keys to the prison. Right. That's why I asked you that question was, I was curious, like, every once in a while, you, did you want to say, okay, guys, let's, there is more to Christianity than this. There's, you know, it's more than the world was created in six actual days, that, that type of thing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and we laugh about it, but you know, some people are very convinced that, we got to get that message out. Or... Oh, I think at one point, I remember for a little while, now I see it as a little while, but I remember kind of going, okay, well, I'm just going to take this fundamentalist reading of this now, this six 24-hour days creation thing, and I'm just going to say everything else has to fit into that. I'll mm-hmm. start with that, mm-hmm. and I'll go back and come up with some other thinking. But I still came up with it in what I now recognize has this kind of little bit of Anglican mystery in it, which was, I would add in this caveat, well, God could have created the world in in 6 billion years or 60 billion years or in 6 nanoseconds and made it look like it took 60 billion years because he exists outside of time above. That was really my belief. But there was a time when I was going, but I'm going to kind of default to the most simple reading of everything. And then it was... But, I mean, that's also part of being young. Right. Having having smarter people come along and say, hey, here's another way to think about Daniel and Revelation. Here's another way to think about spiritual warfare. So my question would be then, with the magazine, how did you balance, realize that maybe your views weren't like everybody else's, and right. but yet still be true to what you, true I, to yourself? I think that I landed on that name, True Tunes, even based on something that Francis Schaeffer wrote. Another uh, controversial person, you could I say. I didn't realize that, of yeah, course. I mean, when I first read one of his books, I thought, well, this is great. And then later on, you know, someone cautioned me, like, well, you might want to be careful. With some really? Of yeah. It was the good, the true, and the beautiful. That phrase <laughs> of like, if we focus on the good, the true, if we chase the good, the true, and beautiful, we will find God. Mm-hmm. That's very much a, a mainline traditional Christian view. Um, if, you, if you follow the truth, you will find God. Um, all truth is God's truth. All these things. Right. right? So true tunes, that was, the, that was why I named it that. It wasn't about like Christian tunes it was these this is where we're finding the truth and if i find it in a van morrison song you know deal with it and i'm going to follow i'm going to pull on that thread and see where it goes 
And instead of taking a, the idea of being a theological critic of Christian culture, we just tried to focus on the stuff that we found compelling. Mm -hmm. And yeah, if you were to go through the old issues, you'll find reviews of records, I'm sure, that we would probably now wince a little bit and go, oh, I didn't realize that. But, I mean, still to this day, the main stuff, the choir, Adam again, Terry Taylor, 77s, Mark Hurd, I still stand by that stuff. Right. It holds up. So here's a nickel for your time and a dollar for your time, just another night of laying low. I see you shovel in the hand of a wild-eyed man with a mission in the door below. Bono, U2. I mean, I got so much crap for selling U2. And that was really what made me ask some friends. I'm like, what is the deal with these Christians who are... I don't understand this. To me, it's obvious that this is gospel music. Like, why are they so upset? And that, that's when I started to learn about that side of fundamentalism and the branding and everything. Um, but it, wasn't, it didn't come naturally to me. I had to learn that. And then my approach, and I still try to do this, it's like, instead of con being confrontational and trying to point out the errors... I try to focus on what we can agree on because I find that if we get in the same boat, we row in the same direction over time, a lot of those things will work themselves out. And you have to earn the right on a very intimate level in somebody's life to really talk about the, the hurtful stuff and the, to the confrontational stuff. And I don't think you can earn that right from afar. You got to earn that right up close and personal. 723, that's what my clock read. Feeling unfed, so I jumped out of bed. Tore a glass of AT, and I'm on my way to breathe the unclean air of the streets of LA. What were some, the, you know, I would say the highlights of having True Tunes or moments that you're the proudest of? And, and if you don't mind, some of the lower points. <laughs> Just seeing the, the way it worked. Like, to have a vision for something when I was 14 years old, and then to see it all pretty much coming together... What I loved was like when a new issue would come from the printer, you know, it was always so exciting. And then loading it into the basement of the building was miserable, but the getting the new issue was always exciting. And then you put it in the mail and you'd wait sometimes a week, to 10 days, because you'd ship it the cheapest possible because right. <laughs> we were not making any money. And then the phone would start ringing and the letters would start coming and later on the emails would start pounding in. And it was just so rewarding. It, it was like, you know, you pull on a rope and somebody pulls on the other end and you know that there's somebody there with you. Generally, there was a rhythm to what we did between 89 and 96 that just grew and grew and grew. And to find out that certain artists actually, the little bit of traction they got because of True Tunes gave them enough of a platform to actually go big, big time. You know, that was really rewarding. A lot of times it was the groups that, we didn't realize this till later, but if you go back and look at the groups in the late 90s and the early 2000s that came from the Christian space but impacted the world at large, they all had a couple things in common. With a, maybe one exception, they had Cornerstone Festival, True Tunes in common. So Cornerstone was the once a year gathering of all these people. And True Tunes kind of became the throughout the year reunion of these people, mm -hmm. this tribe. Mm -hmm. That was always super cool. Even... I mean, occasionally there was a downside. When Michelle and I were first dating, when I was 18, I, we got married when I was 20. So, you know, there wasn't very many years of, <laughs> of being young before I got married. But I remember, you know, 
how cool it was to be out in public somewhere in Chicago, going to a movie or whatever, and have someone come up and recognize me and go, hey, you're John Thompson from True Tunes, man. I love you guys. And if I'm with my friends or with a girlfriend or whatever, it was like that. It makes you feel really cool. Yeah. You know? Not going to lie. One time I was out on a date. I'm pretty sure it was with Michelle. And someone came up to our table while we were talking. And we were going through something fairly, you know, intense in our relationship and our, you know, deal and we were having a conversation and someone came up and wanted to ask me about some new record and whether it was good or not. And it was like, that was the first time that I was like, okay, there's got to be some boundaries to this. There was one time where this kind of crazy woman, we found out later she lived in some kind of halfway house for mentally ill people. She obsessed over me for a little bit and she heard me on the radio. Cause I used to do a lot of radio stuff in Chicago. She heard me on the radio. She went and bought our album because we also have a band together. And, and then she heard about True Tunes. And she started calling True Tunes. And she st- and I would answer the phone half the time, you know. But then I realized I can't answer the phone anymore. Because, you know, the wrong person gets me on the phone and I'm just stuck. She was asking for phone numbers of famous people. Like, do you have Amy Grant's phone number? <laughs> I was like, oh, what? Wow. I'm not giving you Amy Grant's phone number. Do you have, you know, Jamie Rowe from Guardian's phone number? And I was like... I'm not giving you any phone numbers. She would just, and then she'd hang up, call back, and she'd ask the staff for phone mm-hmm. numbers. Phil Keggy's phone number. This and, and so I put a note up. When Carol calls, don't give her any phone numbers, especially mine. And then she kept calling and wanting my home phone number so that she could call me and we could talk at night. And I was like, no, you're not going to. You know, and then I stopped answering the phone. Then one Sunday, I walk into our little church, which was this rock and roll kind of inner city church in Aurora. I walk in the door and I hear her voice before I even see her face. She's found out what church I go to and she's shown up at church and she's walking around with a notebook asking people for their phone numbers and she's asking people for my phone number and I bolt out the door and I go around the other side to the other door. I tell somebody, hey, that woman is crazy. You guys need to get that notebook away from her. And and then she ended up finding my bass player's home phone number, calling his parents or his sister, convincing her that she was a friend of mine from college or something and his sister didn't know any better and gave her my phone number so then my phone at home is just ringing off the hook with and she's she'd fill up my answering machine with just hours of rambling messages and had to call the police and that kind of stuff then there was some dude who came to true tunes all the time and made up all these lies about who he was and pull home in my apartment one time and I see him he's looking at the apartment building there's six units he's trying to figure out which one is mine oh brother and I'm like oh lord and I <laughs> call the police and I'm like there's this dude and you gotta and like don't let him know which unit is mine because you know, now I gotta move <laughs> or whatever so I mean but that was very rare it was uh-huh. mostly really cool to mean that much to people but whenever you mean that much to healthy people you're gonna mean that much to unhealthy people <laughs> The worst part was when it all hit the fan. Like, that almost killed me. It was truly devastating. What changed where you would have to shut it down? Well, it grew very fast. And like I said, we were learning as we went. And there was just a lot I didn't know about managing a business at at that level financially. So, for instance, 
every issue of the magazine at that point in the mid nineties was costing 50 or $60,000 to wow. print. And so we had to come up with that much in ad sales, but and a full page ad was probably worth $1,500. So it was doable. We had a season though, ironically, right when we got to the point where it was big and it was very influential, all of the labels wanted to be in it. We were getting all kinds of attention. A distributor ended up wanting to sell it at newsstands, which was a whole other business that I didn't understand at all. And bookstores, Christian bookstores that used to not want to sell this stuff, wanted to carry True Tunes. And I was naive, you know, I didn't understand. I wasn't competitive about anything. I was excited, like we're opening doors. There was a there were bookstores that would get 300 or 400 copies of True Tunes and put it out in their store. And then whatever we talked about in the magazine, they would display around the magazine and sell it. Well, I'm thinking, awesome. But then I didn't realize, oh, that means all those people aren't buying it from us anymore. And my whole business model was, I do a magazine for free. We pay for it by selling music. So some store in Indiana is now giving away 300 copies and selling all of the music that we would have sold. And all they paid me for was the postage for getting 300 magazines. I'm like, this isn't going to work. Then the other thing is a lot of the Christian labels had grown because of CD sales in the 90s. There was... There was a rapid growth in the rock alternative space within formal Christian music labels. So a lot of the Christian labels were signing rock and metal and alternative stuff. But we had one issue where three or four of these labels just didn't pay their ad bill. We trusted them. We spent the money on the magazine. We shipped the magazine out. And they never paid their bill. So then all of a sudden it comes time to do the next magazine and we don't have, we're, we're short forty fifty thousand dollars we can't so then the magazine's delayed but we can't get the music to sell until we make the magazine so literally four or five labels not paying their ad bill on time we go from making a profit in one year of close to a hundred thousand dollars to being a hundred thousand dollars underwater in less than a year that was a shock we also had too much product in the store. We, we had way too much CDs in stock and um, had been kind of manipulated by some of the sales reps to do them a favor and order more product than we need and then it could be returned. But you lose a little bit every time you do that and that adds up. So there was like a perfect storm that hit to where all of a sudden we're like the biggest thing in faith-based alternative music in the world and we're $100,000 underwater. And a company came along that loved the magazine didn't really care about the store or the concert venue or the even the mail order company, but they loved the magazine. They were a magazine company. And they wanted to buy the magazine to make it big time. But in the process of negotiating with the owner, we saw that they couldn't be separated, that they were all intrinsically linked, that the concert venue was actually important to the magazine because it was the place on earth where all these people came together and it was why the artists kept coming to True Tunes I can interview them. The store was what fueled the concert venue. The concert venue drew in customers to the store. The magazine made money because of mail order sales and eventually we were building towards dot-com sales. But it was all one thing. We didn't feel like you could separate the magazine out. So they, they decided to buy the whole thing and make me a part owner. I would eventually earn equity in it, but they were going to franchise the store. They were gonna, they had this consultant that thought that True Tunes could become the next, you know, vibe or spin kind of magazine. So it was very exciting, but within one year of when they bought it, they were just shutting everything down. They liquidated the store, they shut down the concert. They, basically, they got it back to where they just had the magazine. Right around that time, they're going, 
his dot-com thing is looking pretty enticing. You don't have to print magazines anymore. Let's just kill the print version magazine and move everything to a dot-com. Mm-hmm. So I remember talking to Phil, the, the owner that had started it with me, after a year and a half. He was like, I'm sorry we sold it. I'm like, so, so am I. He's like, we could have killed it. Like, if that's what it took, we mm-hmm. could have shut everything down and kept something. But in hindsight, the hole we were in felt so ominous that selling it was the only way to keep the thing going and then in in a year it was dead anyway so it went and it evolved to the dot-com and they did a pretty good job of launching the original the second owners of launching the original website and then another company bought it from texas and they beefed up the website even more and we were very early to the web thing so we did have a, a ridiculous amount of web traffic and we launched the first streaming radio station of this of its kind anywhere. Because that was one of the things from my original manifesto when I was 14 that I'd never gotten around to. So finally I had a radio station. That kind of. So going from what True Tunes was, this gathering of people, both physically in the store and in the concert venue, virtually through the magazine, to basically a dot-com with a tiny office the size of like this corner of the room. <laughs> All I did all day was deal with angry customers who ordered a Vigilantes of Love CD and didn't get it from the distributor. Like, And it was miserable. I mean, I was depressed. I was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Half the time I was not eating well. Uh, I hated music. I Everything. And that was the darkest, scariest time. I, If it wasn't, I feel like for the fact that I was in a church that was so real, that was so community-minded and so relational, uh, I don't know what I would have done. Um, but, you know, I'm in a place where I was pastoring. I was an elder pastor at this little church. And I'm in a room with the other pastors, and they're in tears over what's going on. Like, they're feeling this pain, and I realized I'm not as alone as I think I am. And so by 2000, the second owners, or I guess third, if the second buyers of True Tunes told me, we're out of money, we can't pay you what we owe you, and... Um, you know, you got to go find other money. There's all uh, millions of other stories in there, but that's when I ended up going to work for Cornerstone Festival and um, walked away. And it was the day that I heard that that the money was gone and True Tunes was going to be winding down. Was the day that U2's record "All That You Can't Leave Behind" came out. It was Halloween, and it was also the day that AOL streamed the first movie ever, which was Night of the Living Dead. And so I'm watching this <laughs> zombie movie in a tiny little box on my computer. And then I'm listening to this U2 record and I'm realizing this thing is dead and I got to let it go. Like it's a zombie now. It's time mm-hmm. to, it's time to let it go. And to walk away from all of that, especially because so much of my identity, my self-esteem was all like mm. from the time I was a kid until I was 30 years old, it was like, man, I did it. It was literally just a manifestation of all of the voices in my head. Mm-hmm. So for it to die meant I was dying. That was really what it came down to. For it to fail meant I failed. I was no longer going to be connected to all these people. I was no longer going to be stopped at a restaurant and asked what I thought about this. I, you know, Nobody wanted my autograph anymore. Like There was the superficial, stupid side of it. And then there was the more deep, serious, real side of it, which was... Like I cultivated this tribe as a member of the tribe. And if the tribe disperses because I failed to recognize a business reality, then my spiritual calling, like I felt this whole thing was something God called me to do. This wasn't a business plan. None of it had to do with me ever making a lot of money. It was literally a calling 
So it's like if this thing splinters and dies, I failed what God called me. But to it do. didn't die. Oil turns to rainbows on rain slicks and streets. Young paper boys and bourbon caps stand in sharp relief. I relate this to you hear bands that were had a really great run. And then maybe on the last album they they were fighting and yeah. and you hear they they go through a, a stage after they break up they don't want to talk about yeah. the band it's all been soured by the end but then over time you know people forgive or time heals did you go through a stage where you didn't want to hear about true tunes especially after it was over uh, somewhat and some of it is also the way early on you start to place blame and so I'm blaming the people that bought it. You know, they ruined it. Well, there's some truth there. There were some really dumb decisions made that if they had gone with what I thought they should do, I think that it could have lasted. But now moving out with a little bit of perspective, you go, oh, we were just the first fruits of the dying music industry. Like, it would have had a lot of problems. There are no record stores anymore. So, you know, we were just way on the cutting edge of the end of physical print because nobody at that point understood what the internet was going to do to not only to physical print of magazines, but to physical sales of music. So it would have had to have undergone a massive, massive, very clever shift in order to survive that, which I know I'm not smart enough to have navigated alone. So now I can go, okay, well, yes, they did some dumb things. I did some dumb things. But the first few years, it was like, I don't want to talk about it because I'm just going to end up throwing these people under the bus over and over again. Um, and some part of me knew that wasn't right. So I just figured it's best to avoid it. But it was really hurtful, if that's the right word, when someone would come up to me, and I'm not kidding, sometimes with tears in their eyes going, what happened? Because to them, this kid in South Dakota, this kid in Minnesota, this kid in Idaho, this kid in Los Angeles, this was a lifeline to them. They didn't get to come to the store. They didn't get to come to the club. They didn't even get to go to Cornerstone. The magazine or the website, that was their tether to this tribe. That's yeah, you took the words out of my mouth, lifeline, because I think of my own experience. And you feel alone most of the time. You feel like the weirdo, the even in the, the church and that magazine. And I think there were some other things that you grasp onto that, I would say, legitimizes you or yeah. it makes you feel like, at least makes you feel like you're not the only weirdo. Exactly. And that's what we all want to feel like because we're all weirdos. Even the most normal mainstream people are weirdos deep down. They just want to know that they matter. So that was, for a while, very, very difficult. But I will say that it it was a relatively short-lived turnaround for me because it's the hardest thing for me to let something go. I'm, just, I'm still not good at it. But I'm starting to learn that the thing on the other side of letting go has always been better than the thing I had to let go. I couldn't imagine anything being better than True Tunes because... It was so awesome. It was better than I dreamed it was going to be when I cooked it up at 14. It was way better. But the years working with Cornerstone and the years being here in Nashville for 10 years, it's just amazing. This And it's funny, when I was at Capitol in the Christian music, I got recruited to join the biggest music company in the Christian scene, and it was very mainstream. And I remember when I, when I got the offer, I was like, I felt like God was saying, I'm going to have, this is a season for you where you're going to have a boss. You're going to have to show up at a certain time. You're going to have vacation days, which I never had in True Teens land. But I'm going to learn some stuff. I'm going to learn mm -hmm. some skills that I didn't. 
And then when I was in that job, the people there were were amazed at kind of my innate sense of marketing sensibilities, which was not an exploitive kind of marketing. It was that same customer first, everything depends on the end user that I learned viscerally at True Tunes, I could apply to the world of music publishing. Um, the relational skills I had with talking to artists and songwriters, making them feel at ease and really understanding what they not wanted and needed and helping articulate that. One of the highlights for me was when one of my favorite artists later told me he really only liked to ever do interviews with me. He said he hated doing interviews with other magazines, with other people, but he said they all had a sense of trying to make sense out of him. Like, mm -hmm. felt like they were trying to have him make sense and in a way that made them look cool. He said, with you and with True Tunes, I always felt like you are you were genuinely trying to help me articulate what I wanted to say. And if you fixed it or edited it or the way you asked the questions were because you knew what I was trying to say better than I knew how to say it. Because a lot of times the artists and the songwriters are not good conversationalists. Right. And so my heart was not to exploit that or to get catch them or or to deify them. It was just to help them say what they were trying to say. Because again, I'm the reader. Yes, I'm the writer, but I'm also the reader and I'm going, this is what I want to know. What's moving the heart of this person? So that meant a lot to me, but then I've applied that to everything else. Some of these artists started to hire me to write bios for them and stuff because mm -hmm. I could help them articulate that stuff. Um, so now what I'm doing at Treveca, working with college students who weren't even born when, <laughs> when I was doing the True Tunes thing. It's fun because now the industry has collapsed. The old canyon that I used to feel the need to build a bridge over is gone. You can broadcast your music digitally for free. You don't need a record company, but there's chaos as a result. So there's more of a need for a True Tunes kind of tribe than there ever has been. And in fact, I just recently was given the name truetunes.com back. So really? I actually have it back. I haven't done anything with it yet because I'm really thinking like, how can I coalesce this community again in this new environment? Not around selling CDs, not around selling anything, but just around gathering attention. And I'm still trying to figure that out. So things like podcasts and things like that'll all be part of the process. But it's like I've got it, and I'm I'm really hoping that this next year is when I can figure out a way to do something to try and not just coalesce the old guard people, though I want to do that, but also these college students who are coming up and these young artists. They don't have the same problems that a lot of us had. They're 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 used to the idea that there are people that are Christians that make music, and there are people that aren't Christians that make music, and they, as Christians, can make music for everybody, and they can actually influence people's thoughts, not just that already agree with them. Right. You know, what a, what a concept. Yeah. So it's pretty exciting, but it's also like, I feel like uh, there's something about what happened with that True Tunes era that we need to kind of recapture because it was so fun. It was so life-giving to feel like, oh. I take the chance I catch your sudden eyes. One glance I realize I have no words. But if you'd listen to me, talk about the true tunes tribe yeah. and it, there was definitely a certain kind of character that gravitated towards that and of course true tunes doesn't exist anymore but the tribe still does as 
I think we mentioned a before. remnant. Yeah, <laughs> a faithful remnant. And in a brief way, what are they doing? And who are some new faces, new blood? Man, that there's a ton of new stuff. And the originals, the kind of folks that we started this all for, some of them are still very active. They're finding a new way to do it. I mean, the 77s played in my neighbor's basement because it was raining. Uh, it was too cold. Mike Rowe and Steve and Derry, and they've all played here in my backyard. So I'm still doing a lot of what I did at True Tunes here in my house. But those guys are, most of them are still doing something. A lot of it has been focused on recently, uh, Low Fidelity Records, which is also from Chicago. And Jeff Cotoff used to work right, right for True Tunes and stuff. He's been doing these vinyl reissues of those classic Adam again records and stuff like that. The choir is still making new records every few years that are just better and better and better. Um, Mike Rowe is still active um, touring and doing 77s and solo stuff. Terry Taylor uh, has done this great Patreon thing where you can support him a few bucks a month. He does custom EPs every month for the people that support him at different levels. And some of it's acoustic versions of old DA songs. Some is new songs. It's been really very cool. To, and he writes some articles. He's turned us on to some books that he read back in the day. They just did a Kickstarter for the Daniel Amos record, Horrendous Disc, which I remember scouring the earth for vinyl copies of that thing when you couldn't find it and reselling them at True Tunes. To me, that was like the Rosetta Stone of, <laughs> of our music world. There's still that stuff out there. It's just harder and harder for those guys to connect with the people that, that care. It's all about Facebook. It's all about, and unfortunately, the, the Facebook thing is really dangerous because you think you're connecting with people more than you are. It's a lie. The whole thing, I've got supposedly whatever, 2,500, 3,000 friends on Facebook. I post something and, and 50, the same 50 people see it every time unless right. I pay them money for it to go beyond there. And I wrote a book a couple of years ago and thought, okay, I've got all these thousands of people. And then there's still people going, I didn't realize you wrote a book. And it's like, it's just amazing to me, the mm -hmm. amount of focused energy I put into promoting that book on Facebook. And there are still people that never heard about, mm -hmm. about it. There's still work to be done. There's opportunities. There's the technological tools are there for us to connect, but we're not yet using them some people won't check their email. You know, some people only want to get stuff in Facebook. Some people only want to get texts. And now I'm getting all these people sending me connection requests for a new social network that's better than LinkedIn for business. It's some new thing. I'm like, no, I'm not joining another. I don't care how cool it is. So I feel like we're kind of a little bit in the Oklahoma City land grab territory when it comes to social networking still. We're abdicating a lot of it. We're thinking that we're more connected than we are. The stuff that really matters to us or that mattered to us starts to become less important. And the people, the artists that we used to love, most people aren't following anymore. There are new artists that are coming out. But again, it's harder and harder for them to find enough of an audience to make a living, especially because nobody buys the music. They listen to the music for free, so they got to be able to tour. How do you get people to show up to see shows? I feel like that we need more branded taste making like uh we need cultivators of culture people that are going to curate things it's going to be playlists and it's going to be video things and it's going to be streamed house concerts and stuff like that so i'm i'm sitting and thinking about it and i'm hanging out with college students all the time now that are a lot hipper with that stuff than i am i've got my own kids three of whom are adults and on their own and they're very much in that world and so 
I do think that there's hope and there's opportunities, but I'm still very much in the learning phase of how do we, how do we channel all this stuff and coalesce it into an actionable number that can actually move the needle for artists, whether that's Mike Rowe and, and Bill Maloney and those guys, or whether it's some kid we haven't heard of. And if you want to follow what John's getting up to these days or check out his books he's written, you can find him on Facebook by searching John J. Thompson. In the Corner, Black Rod of the Woodpile is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching for Spun Counter Guy. You can send us an email via SpunCounterGuy at Hotmail.com. The podcast is also hosted on iTunes and Podbean.com. Peace and chicken grease!